The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of January 8th. 2018. On this week's show, I will be joined by former NFL star Nate Jackson and football writer Melissa Jacobs to talk about the NFL playoffs, the latest drama involving the New England Patriots, and the Oakland Raiders' decision to give Monday Night Football commentator John Gruden a Gatorade shower of money. Our friend Spencer Hall of SB Nation will be here to discuss college football's true national champions, the University of Central Florida. And finally, top-flight English soccer writer Jonathan Wilson, who edits the magazine The Blizzard, will stop by to examine Manchester City's obliteration of the Premier League. Josh Levine, the editorial director of Slate Magazine, is off this week. I've got no solo banter. So let's get right to it. The NFL's week started with a really nice sports moment. The Buffalo Bills made the playoffs thanks to a last-second touchdown pass in another game. The reaction videos were fantastic. Fans donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to the foundation of the quarterback who threw the pass, the Bengals' Andy Dalton. And then it was right back to the depressing, head-shaking awfulness that the NFL can be. One sequence near the end of Jacksonville's scintillating... Not 10-3 win over Buffalo on Sunday went like this. Brutal hit, concussion, rules confusion, catch confusion, replay review, the NFL in a nutshell. Nate Jackson is here. He's the author of Slow Getting Up and Fantasy Man. He played six seasons for the Denver Broncos. Hey, Nate. Hey, Stefan. How are you? Good. Melissa Jacobs runs the Football Girl website and podcast. She is a former staffer at ESPN and Sports Illustrated. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming, guys. And uh, that sequence in the Bills-Jags game was really something to me. Tyrod Taylor, the Buffalo quarterback, was concussed. Tony Romo in the uh, in the booth freaked out. Not about that but about how 10 seconds should have been run off the clock. And the rest was like rule booking and replaying. And it destroyed whatever good feelings I was having about this terrible game. And it was capped off later with a tweet from Jags lineman Yannick Nakue accusing Bill's lineman and former Dolphins racist, homophobe, and bully Richie Incognito of directing racial slurs at Jacksonville players during the game. I mean, Nate, this was kind of depressing. Uh, I mean, yeah, it was depressing. It was depressing at the end. I think the most depressing part for me was just to watch Tyrod Taylor deal with that injury. Yeah. I mean, you know, we always have this past of kind of brushing it under the rug and moving it on to the next play. And so injuries are a part of the game. But just to watch him uh, not moving uh, on the field with, you know, one minute left and Tony Romo, like you said, talking about the seconds on the clock, I mean, Tony Romo is all in with the football virtue stuff, but I, I wish that he would kind of talk about the consequences of the game a little more. But that's what happens when you put a quarterback in the booth. Uh, Melissa, the Jacksonville-Buffalo game obviously was not the most aesthetically pleasing football game that we've ever watched. No. The next game, though, between the New Orleans Saints and the Carolina Panthers was um, Drew Brees at 38 was amazing um, for New Orleans. And Cam Newton played pretty well on the opposite side for the Panthers. But again, the storyline was kind of hijacked by NFL bullshit. Uh, Cam Newton near the end of that game after a tackle showed signs of brain injury. He took a knee when he was coming off the field, came out for one play, and then returned for the next possession under the new concussion protocol in the NFL. He was supposed to go to the locker room because he like went to his knee while he was on the field, and he didn't. The Panthers tweeted, Cam Newton has been evaluated for a concussion and cleared. The NFL said it was investigating. Again, it feels like the NFL can't get out of its own way, um, even in the playoffs, when the focus is supposed to return to football. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the exact rule, and, and you know, we, I was one of the people that you know, get, get that get in the inbox, I think it was nine days ago, and thinking like, okay, how are they going to muck this up, basically, as they have every other version. And, and I mean, the rule that applies to Cam was require a locker room concussion evaluation for all players demonstrating gross or sustained vertical instability, e.g. stumbling or falling to the ground when trying to stand. Cam was clearly stumbling. There is no question. He should have been taken to the locker room. I mean, it's a complete sham. I, you know, it's, it's almost like in some ways there's too many cooks in the kitchen. I mean, they, you know, they have this whole layer. It's supposed to go all the way up to someone in New York spotting the spotters. And 
I don't know what the solution is, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a disaster. And as you know, as a mom of, of two young boys, it just continues to cement the fact that there's no way in hell I'm letting them play football. Nate, what, what do you see when, when you, when you saw Newton um, take that knee and, 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 and not get evaluated and come right back in? Well, it just underscores the kind of the chaotic nature of, of the sideline of a football game. And, you know, that, that adrenaline is not exclusive to the players themselves. The coaches are feeling that. The doctors are feeling that. I mean, you've been on the sideline during game step, and I'm sure you felt that same energy. And so it's hard to separate yourself from the reality of that frenetic moment and, and deal instead with a concussion protocol that's being written by, you know, people in a, in a warm office sometime in the middle of the week. My belief is that, hey, let's accept some of the realities of the danger and violence here and protect these players on the back end after they get hurt. Guys like Tyrod Taylor and all these guys who sustain these really difficult injuries are going to be fighting for health care for the rest of their lives from the NFL. They have five years of post-career health coverage, and it's over for them. And other than that, I mean, they can do what they can try to do on the field with these concussions. I mean, I'm of the mind that the way to, to stop this problem is to change uh, a few little rules in the game that spread out the action and make it less predictable. But I don't know how you stop uh, these hits because these guys are big, strong, and they're getting faster every year. Well, Melissa, I think the stopping the hits is something that's crossed my mind repeatedly this season, particularly when you see players diving in late um, or diving in and, you know, and, and Nate, I know you, you Players instinctively lower their heads, both ball carriers and tacklers do. But every time I see someone now, and I think this has reshaped my, my feelings watching football more than anything, every time I see somebody just going in late, um, very late, that's when I get like, oh, this is changeable. And it's obviously you need attitudinal changes and rule changes and behavioral changes, but I think it's changeable. Yeah, I, I I agree that some of those very late hits, and I mean, Nate would know this better than me given that he played, but, you know, I'm starting to feel a little bit like the Mike Mitchells and Thomas Davises of the world. I mean, Mike Mitchell, you know, is considered a dirty player. Um, Thomas Davis is starting to be considered a dirty player, but it's sort of that, like, split second, like the speed of the game that I don't think we really understand sitting on our couches and, you know, what they've been taught since they were playing Pop Warner and, how you tax someone and if you, you know, if a receiver is lowering his head and you're lowering to meet him and your helmet hits his helmet and drives him into the ground. I mean, you know, there's, there's some, there's some like split second decisions that I just don't think defenders can, can alter. So therefore I don't think that there's you know, any way to, to, to really, you know, mitigate the concussions that are happening. You know, I think there's some clear hits that are very, very late, and that's a completely different ball game. But I, I think most of them are like playing in what would have been legal, you know, five, six years ago, and then asking these players to completely right. adjust the speed of their reaction time, which is pretty impossible. Well, yeah, I want to add one more thing about that. The defense is like, when you're a defensive player, you're taught to never stop attacking the ball because these offensive players are so good at breaking tackles. And so you might think a guy is about to be tackled and he slips away from that tackle and goes for a touchdown. And you, as a defensive player who let up coming into that tackle because you thought he was about to get tackled, have to watch that play on film that next week and you get berated by a coach who makes it very plain to you that if you make that mistake again, your ass is going to be on the streets. I mean, that happens every week in NFL uh, meeting rooms. And so these guys have to attack the ball until it's you know, until the ball is dead. And so that's what you get. A lot of those guys coming in late are just doing their jobs or at least doing what they're paid to be doing. Uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars move on to play the Pittsburgh Steelers next week. Jacksonville actually beat them 30 to nine earlier in the season, but that wasn't due to the Sterling quarterbacking of Blake Bortles. It was about Jacksonville's defense, which is pretty awesome. Um, clearly the best in the NFL. Um, the other AFC American football conference semifinal is uh, the Tennessee Titans against the new England Patriots, but enough about that game. Let's talk about Seth Wickersham's story on ESPN about the uh, apparent potential end of the Brady Belichick craft union. Uh, Melissa, you noted that uh, Belichick actually comes off as the most sympathetic figure in that piece, but I see some Machiavellian behavior um, in, in, in Bill Belichick. In specifically in the decision to trade uh, backup quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo to San Francisco earlier in the uh, in the season. You see him being Machiavellian? I do. I've kind of read it as, I mean, the, the story that Wickersham presents is that 
Kraft said, we're sticking with Brady. We got to get rid of Garoppolo. And Belichick then just picks up the phone, calls his buddy, mm-hmm. Kyle Shanahan, who's the head coach of the 49ers now, and says, ah, you can have him for a second round draft pick. And I read that as either, well, Belichick is actually behaving like a human being. He's giving this talented athlete a chance to go somewhere and enjoy a few years as a starting quarterback before he's either injured or retires. He was being generous. Or that he's saying to to Bob Kraft, the owner of the team, you know what? Fuck you. You don't want to do it my way. I'm sending him off for nothing. Yeah, I I kind of viewed it as as the fuck you version of it. I mean, here you are, Belichick. You literally have the most, you know, masterful strategist possibly ever in the history of football and you're just going to present your loyalty to a, to a 40 year old quarterback. I mean, be the greatest of all time, but you're basically trading. I mean, Bill Belichick had set up the future. He had the secession plan and Bob Kraft is, you know, was basically saying like Tom Brady's my son. So sorry. Like you get like one or two more years of being up top. And then it's basically a rebuild at that point. Go, go find another Jimmy Garoppolo. I mean, if I'm Bill Belichick, I'm, I'm, giving a middle finger too. Uh, Nate, the other two things in that story that um, as a player I thought would 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 be uh, kind of uh, worth discussing are, one, the fact that new players allegedly address Tom Brady as sir, <laughs> which <laughs> I found a little bit bizarre. I, I did not call you sir when I came into the Denver Broncos locker room, just to be clear. And the second part is that Brady's reliance on this quack fitness guru, Alex Guerrero, who he has basically handed, you know, kind of both a business and a, and a, and a training um, partnership with at this point. How do players or how do you think players would respond to something like a situation with a private trainer who's given wide access to the locker room and it ends up kind of pressuring teammates to, to sort of adopt his own kind of crazy cures and methods? Right. Uh, to address both questions, uh, the first one, the reason why you didn't call me sir is because you were 20 years older than me at the time. <laughs> and uh, for those guys coming into the locker room now, Tom Brady is 20 years older than them. So it, it makes sense that they would call him sir just on the age difference thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think the quack, you know, the quack science trainer guy is a story that repeats itself, not just within the Patriots. I think that's the most prominent one but when i played for the broncos there was an off-site guy that we went to that had friction with our training staff that happens often you know you get guys who are sick of the training methods that they get in the nfl right sick of the archaic way that they lift weights or the nutrition i mean we didn't have nutrition guys around uh, we didn't have a chiropractor that we trusted so we went off-site to a guy that used to work for the broncos and then went and, and made it on his own and then had had a problem with greek the trainer you know and so um, I think these things are kind of normal, but what's abnormal about this is the length of time that Tom Brady's been around and, you know, uh, <clears throat> the embeddedness with which this guy Guerrero now works for the Patriots. I- I've never heard of a guy being given access, a-, a guru type of guy being given access to medical records and, you know, the locker room and the guys as much as this Guerrero guy did. Melissa, you're kind of a, of a John Gruden expert on your on your website, <laughs> The Football Girl. You've been breaking down Grudenisms every week from, from his uh, from his time in the Monday Night Football booth. Um, don't at me, but I, I kind of liked Gruden in the booth because he was perfect for the gig. He's kind of an over-the-top self-parody of a football coach. He was a caricature. And the reason that it worked, I think, is that unlike John Madden after a few years, you never had the sense that John Gruden was acting. That it was a that it was a show that yeah he heightened it but I think that's who he is. My question is how do you justify signing him to a hundred million dollar ten year contract? We don't know how much of that is guaranteed, of course, Melissa. What's been mm-hmm. the you live in Oakland? What has been the the reception there to Gruden returning to the NFL after what eight years away, nine years away, nine years away? Yeah, first of all, I, I want to say that. I do agree with you. We, we've had a segment called Positively Gruden where we've chronicled the best Grudens basically for the last, I think, six years. And most people think it's mockery, but it's it's really not. It's sort of like paying homage to this guy who presents football as an art form. Um, and yes, there's a hyperbole and the positivity, but he's going to be sorely missed, I, I believe. Um, in Oakland, I mean, I haven't, you know, done done an extensive poll, but from my, you know, coffee shop visits and hanging out in downtown Oakland, I think 
I think the fans around here expect a Super Bowl before they move to Vegas. It is, it is, uh, the, the hype, the hype is real. Um, I think the contract is ridiculous. Uh, I don't think, you know, I don't see why any NFL coach, given the precedent that we see other than, you know, Marvin Lewis apparently should be given a contract that's more than, you know, three or four years at this point. Um, I mean, you know, rookies don't get 10-year contracts, uh, so I don't I don't really, you know, get it. And, again, we don't know the guaranteed money, but, you know, we'll see. But Gruden at some point, you know, five years down the road could be getting, like, $50 million check and can just go buy an island, I guess. Uh, Nate, um, do you think that working outside of a locker room, even in a TV booth, can change a coach enough to make him understand players better? Or is it the opposite, that he becomes even more detached from the reality of the game the longer he's away from it? And Gruden's been away from it for a long time. Yeah, I think you know, he's going to become, uh, he's going to find himself a little more detached, not necessarily from the game, because the game of football hasn't changed that much, you know, but the players themselves, those guys have changed. And can he communicate with a group of millennials? That's going to be the question here, because when I was in Denver, you know it. Uh, Mike Shanahan is a, a a very successful coach. He won two Super Bowls. But as he got older, you know the message. His message got a little stale for some people, and he wasn't able to communicate as well with the younger generation of players as he was with the older generation that he was successful with. And so John Gruden is going to have that challenge. Nate Jackson is the author of Slow Getting Up and Fantasy Man. He played for the Denver Broncos. He's also doing a podcast called The Mindful Warrior. And Melissa Jacobs, she runs the Football Girl website and podcast, used to work at ESPN and Sports Illustrated, among other places. Thank you, Nate, for coming on the show. Thank you, Stefan, for having me. And Melissa, thank you as well. Thank you for having me as well. Before we get to college football, a heads up that on our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, Jonathan Wilson will stick around and talk about his book, Inverting the Pyramid, which explores the evolution of soccer tactics. It's really interesting. If you want to hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. And if you do, you can get a Slate tote bag plus bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. College football's championship game between Alabama and Georgia was to be played on Monday night after the taping of this podcast. And if you detected the air quotes around championship game, that's because everybody knows that after beating Auburn in the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl to finish a perfect 13-0, the University of Central Florida is the undisputed champion of college football. Just listen to UCF Athletic Director Danny White. I think our kids deserve it, most importantly. We, we played... 13 games this year and won them all and, and overcome just an awful lot of adversity with the hurricane and rescheduled games. We lost our bye week. Uh, we got a special group of, of mature kids. They overcome uh, the coaching change adversity and really stayed focused and dialed in. And uh, I don't know any other way to, to, to define our season other than they earned a national championship. They won every single game they played. Uh, and I think they should have every opportunity to, to call themselves out. Just to be clear, that Danny White is not the former quarterback of the Memphis Southmen and the Dallas Cowboys. My next guest knew that, of course. He is Spencer Hall, the editor-at-large for SB Nation and the founder of the blog Every Day Should Be Saturday. What's up, Spencer? Oh, you know, just sitting here waiting for the city to freeze up. Some people will be listening to this after the 50-car pileup on whatever your interstate is between uh, uh, in, in, which, which one of Birmingham. five yeah pick one whatever <laughs> all right let's start with ucf if you've got to look up the name of a team's mascot and i did it's the knights uh they are not eligible then to be national champions but ucf did beat auburn which during the regular season beat the two teams in the championship game by a combined 35 points and it renamed its twitter feed 2017 national champions and aforementioned danny white paid head coach former head coach scott frost and his staff who are leaving for Nebraska championship bonuses. And the team had a parade on Sunday at Disney World. So who, Spencer, are we to argue that the University of Central Florida Knights are not national champions? You can't. There's the fun part. I, I would correct everybody who assumes we have an orderly method for doing anything in this sport. But we don't. We don't have one. We don't have a, a unified real method of determining a national champion. It's a lot like TSA. 
Okay, that's that's if you want to go. Okay, well, what's college football like? It's like TSA. Did you know that you can get on a plane without ID? I did not. TSA being this kind of like large, sloppy, um, you know, poorly organized, you know, octopus uh-huh. armed beast that people think is a real thing. Um, we just kind of come to an agreement that it exists, right? Right. Right. Well, and that's the that is the the great charade of the playoff system and the BCS before it. Um, college football's champion from 1869 until 1998 was totally arbitrary. You know, for the first few decades, people actually went back and like voted, well, who's the champion in 1869? It's, well, we're going to say Rutgers and Princeton get to share it. And then the coaches and the writers voted for their favorite teams, most of which they never saw play. I learned from a Mark Tracy piece in the New York Times that five teams claimed to be national champion in 1935 and six did so in 1981. Quote, from the end of World War II to 1998, just five national titles were not claimed by more than one team. And you can even argue, right, that it's still arbitrary because there's too many conferences, there's too many teams, there's too much subjectivity in deciding who gets to play in this four-team playoff. Texas A&M just added, like a few years ago, decided that they were going to add two fake championships. Mm-hmm. Auburn, Auburn. Auburn did the same. Yep. Auburn did that. Bama, Bama, the number of championships that Alabama, like consider this, that Alabama might have the most completely undisputed national titles of any team, right? If we were to go ahead, break out the hammer and try to knock off as much, you know, as much mold and mildew and sort of fraudulent claim off of Alabama's reputation as possible, they would be the one with the most rock solid cases for championship standing, correct? Mm -hmm. Sure. Even they... Even they have titles they claim, which are obviously flimsy, right? At best. So that says something when, you know, the biggest, like, the biggest bully on the block, you know, is still wearing platform lifts in his shoes, right? Like, that's so UCF can go ahead and do that. And UCF, by the way, they should. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, there's nothing keeping them from doing that. God bless them. They're having a party during the game in downtown Orlando. So, yeah. Do it. Why, you know, if you get a chance to celebrate, you, you know, you probably should. And it just so happens that UCF beat everybody that they scheduled. They beat the daylights out of the team in the bowl game. It wasn't like they got lucky, you know, and completed a couple of long passes and got a bunch of turnovers. No, 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 no. Mackenzie Milton missed like three open TDs in that game, y'all. It was not close. What they were doing and how they looked and how disciplined and organized, it did, you know, like on a football note. It had to make people go, maybe Nebraska could come back, y'all. Because uh-huh. Scott Frost had UCF looking like world beaters. Right. I'm like, well, what's he going to do up in Lincoln? Now, admittedly, you might come back and go, uh, UCF and Lincoln, in terms of recruiting and facilities right now, might be kind of a push. And I I, I would agree. But that, that had to give anyone watching who was a Nebraska fan immense optimism, maybe delusional optimism about how they were going to do. And also, you, I, I wanted to ask you one thing. Did you know what the old UCF mascot was? No. <laughs> I didn't know what the current one was. How would I know what the old one was? <laughs> oh, we're, we're about to learn you up here. Uh, the old one was when it was Florida Tech, Yeah, which was what UCF was prior to becoming UCF. Uh, it was the Citronaut, the Florida Technical University. Oh man, Citronaut! That is you, so much better. I want you to look it up if you can, because remember the two things Florida was known for at the time. Yes, prior, prior to its um, its coming out party as America's perpetually drunk uncle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, UCF. We, you know, was known oh for. Oh my God! Citrus. That mascot is like a you cross just, between you just, and he George just saw Jetson. It, it's like George Jetson wearing an orange. It's an orange that has had a, a an astronaut's head stapled to the top George of Jetson's it. George right? Jetson's head stapled to the top of it. Yeah, the, the Citronaut. Oh and I God. really want UCF to go retro one day, right, when they have enough sense of humor about themselves and have had enough success, right, on the football field. Well, now that they're I national champions, to, yeah, they have. Right. I want They can do that now. They should go retro and they should completely put the Citronaut because – you should go look it up right now. It's a magnificent it is. forgotten mascot. UCF has been complaining, as they should, that 
this is a rigged system. They are in one of the, what do they call them? The, the second five conferences. They are excluded, of course. From group of five. Group yeah. of five. They're basically excluded from any realistic opportunity to be ranked high enough to make it into the playoff. And this, these, these complaints are identical to what was happening 20 years ago. Uh, I went back and I read a story I wrote for the Wall Street Journal in 2003 about Tulane. Like UCF, Tulane was undefeated in 1998. That was the first year of the BCF. They were not obviously invited to a BCS bowl game. Tulane's president was a guy named Scott Cowan. Uh, the non-BCS schools led by Cowan threatened to sue the cartel. Uh, there were congressional hearings. Joe Biden and others backed Tulane's. Biden's kids went to Tulane. It got pretty ugly. And what did it lead to? It led to one extra BCS bowl game, a fifth game, and that allowed the occasional TCU or whoever to play for a little bit of extra cash. And that eventually led to the four-team playoff, which, of course, means there are fewer teams playing in the most lucrative bowl games. Um, do you think this round of bitching from an overlooked minnow in college football can have any effect? I always think it does. People get very cynical about this. However, I think that there is no harm in them doing this, right? None. It can only help their position. I understand that writers it, writers tend to be institutionalists. Writers tend to be, I think, inadvertently pro-authority because those are their sources, correct? Uh -huh. Especially in sports where it's based on access. And I think that when UCF does this, it's often seen as, you know, oh, there'll be a laughing stock. And admittedly, I think it's funny because the the humor for me is, is a reflection of the larger dysfunction of this system, right? Uh, not UCF's individual sort of incompetence or lack of understanding of the situation. Because in the end, UCF has read this completely right. They can go ahead and claim this. I do think it improves that. I think it gives people pause, especially when – and it's not fair and it's not necessarily logical – but when a team gets in and they get absolutely hammered. But I do think it helps because I think that you chip away at it and eventually one day that last little chip takes it from a 50-50 proposition to a 49-51, right? That's how you move this. Change happens very slowly in this sport. Right, and right? Whether, whether change is eight teams or 16 teams, it's change. Yeah, and, and, and it will be. There's too much money right now to turn down an eight-team playoff. That's... Like, if you want to know what really chips away at things in numbers greater than one, it's money. Yeah, and, and it's got to be – basically, it's got to be more money from an 18 playoff than a team can generate locally from the extra game that it's going to have to sacrifice in all likelihood um, – to, you know, to get to a 12 or a 13 team, a 13 game regular season, because you don't want teams playing 17. Correct. This games. is like, this is a classic, like local politics yes. makes large national effects kind of thing, right? Because a lot of college football's issues come and their economic issues comes from, oh, well, hey, we don't want, you know, we don't want the concessionaires. We don't want to lose the revenue from one home game against, you know, FCS East. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, that and that adds up to a lot of weird effects on the macro level in terms of what schedules look like, what they're actually made of when you look at a team's wins, that kind of stuff. And that's you know, that's you can explain that to people pretty easily when they go, well, why is the sport so messed up? You go, well, all right, if, if I've got a bunch of little local effects that add up to something weird and big on the national level. All right, we can't talk about the putative title game, but it is an all-SEC affair, which the South will love, uh, but not sure about the rest of the country. Uh, the biggest SEC troll, though, isn't some Yankee. It's Lane Kiffin, the former USC coach. He was he was USC coach for a while, wasn't he? Um, former yeah, assistant at Alabama under head coach Nick Saban. He is now the head coach at Florida Atlantic. He's been uh, he's been kind of trolling Saban and uh, Alabama on Twitter. He went on uh, Dan Lebitard's show the other day. Lebitard asked him about working at Alabama. Kiffin described walking down the hall in the facility and seeing pictures of championship coaches. And then he said, they all look miserable. And then Lebitard followed up by asking him a question. Let us listen to that exchange. How long were you miserable there? Like how, how, how many days of all the time you were in Alabama, how many days did you go to work miserable because that's the environment that you were working in? I'm not talking about Alabama, the environment that Saban created. Uh, what percentage of the days did you go in miserable? Well, there's 365 and you play, you know, 14. So whatever, 351 days. Yeah. I like game day. You know, that's, that's fun. Because so that was it. So about twelve. <laughs> no, like, so about twelve days a year, you were happy you like driving into work. So basically, 
basically it's not even all of game day. It's just the three hours, maybe, as long as Saban's not yelling at you during those two because you're putting up 50 instead of 60. Yeah, it's, 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 it's about, that's not three and a half hours. It's three hours and 15 minutes. You know, you're happy, which is, you know, because you have the best players, so you know you're going to win, and you're out there and you're scoring a million points and a million yards, um, and it's the last 15 minutes of the game when you're up by 30, but, you know, you hand the ball off left instead of right, and so you get your ass ripped. One of the most marvelous things to me is that Lane Kiffin's primary mentors when it comes to who he's worked under and what the attitudes are, polar opposites. One is Pete Carroll, and the other is Nick Saban. Right. You have a coach who believes that only good things will happen and only possibilities and that you could, in fact, win forever. And then you have his opposite, the other pole, Nick Saban, who the entire thing is his entire system is predicated on. We will not lose. Right. And they both work. Right. They both work. They're both very successful coaches. Carol at two levels, I would point out, because I like cracking on Saban. However. I, it's amazing to me that Lane Kiffin managed to work for both of them. And by the way, it was successful for both of them. Yeah. Like did did his job really well. We forget that often with Lane Kiffin, but that FAU team, they were great this year. They were a delight to watch, especially toward the end of the year. Once they got away from, you know, getting their teeth knocked in against Wisconsin, right? A much bigger team with, you know, bigger recruits from, you know, slightly better places there. He's done a great job wherever he's been. But there's also the point, too, of, okay, w- w- you don't have to be miserable doing this, do you? I really appreciate that. It, it does yeah, remind me no. of Pete Carroll, and it's sort of like Lane Kiffin is making a choice. Which of your mentors do you want to be like for the rest of your career? I hope he chooses, you know, I hope he chooses Pete Carroll, you know, yeah. like if we'll, we'll know if it's true if Lane Kiffin comes through as a 9-11 truther. <laughs> That's the real step here, right? <laughs> If Lane Kiffin's like, hey, listen, I've done my own research and evaluated the videotape. And, uh, you know, based on what I know about tensile steel, I just don't think it um, I don't think it could have been that alone. That's how you'll know that he took, you know, the, the Pete Carroll path. Right. Or maybe he'll just be nice to his players. Spencer Hall is the editor at large for SB Nation. He is the brains behind every day should be Saturday. Spencer, thank you, man. Thank you, sir. Manchester City is making a mess of the Premier League. It hasn't lost a game this season, winning 20 and drawing two. It sits 15 points clear of the field with 16 games left to play. City is already in the semifinals of England's Football League Cup. On Saturday, it advanced to the fourth round of the FA Cup, drubbing Burnley 4-1. to To top it off, it is yet to lose a match in the Champions League. Jonathan Wilson edits The Blizzard. He is the author of a bunch of terrific books about football, the names of a few of which I will divulge at the end of this segment. He is with me now. Hey, Jonathan. Hi, how you doing? Very well. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, last week, Manchester City manager Pep Guardiola dismissed the possibility of the team winning all four titles, Premier League, FA Cup, League Cup, Champions League, which no English club has ever done. Is he just being coy or is that a possibility? Oh, I think it's a definite possibility. I mean, you know, if you look even at the the draws they've got in the in the Cups, um, I mean, the FA Cup draw, we'll, we'll find out later today, but the, the League Cup, you know, they played Bristol City, so they're playing a championship team, not even playing a, a Premier League team in the semi-finals. So, you know, it would be a massive shock if, for them not to get at least to the final of that. Um, but the Champions League, they're playing Basel, which, you know, probably the easiest of the, certainly one of the two or three easiest ties they could have got. So you think, okay, they're almost certainly in the quarterfinal of the Champions League. Um, the Premier League is as good as done. that They can start resting players in the Premier League if they, if they want to. Um, so. Yeah, they, they're they as close now, I think, as any team has ever been to doing quadruple. And Guardiola accomplished a similar feat, of course, with Barcelona in 2009. And he said uh, last week or the week before that he'd need 32 top flight players to pull off the quadruple. On the other hand, as you mentioned, he can rest players now in the premiership. And he, you know, we're still in the transfer window. He, he reportedly, I read, asked City for a, a budget of 50 million pounds to bolster the roster um, uh, in the next month. Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite likely that Alexis Sanchez will will go there. Um, I think there's some debate as to whether he goes in January or whether he goes in, in the summer. 
but I, you know he definitely wants a forward. I think the the injury to Gabriel Jesus, the knee injury, which is going to keep him out for a couple of months. I think that sort of put pressure on that situation, which was brewing anyway. That um, especially with Sergio Aguero's history of injuries, you don't want to just be relying on him. So I, I think they. They, they definitely want a forward and I think they'll step up the efforts to get Alexis Sanchez, who I think is pretty keen to go and his contract at Arsenal is up in the summer. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, given Arsenal's chance of winning anything this season are diminishing, uh, is there really any sense in them holding on to Sanchez when they could get, I don't know, 15, 20 million for him now? Yeah, I, I can see that deal happening. How much of this is just personnel and the money to be able to acquire it? And how much of it is tactics? What's made them so absurdly dominant this season? Well, it's a combination. I mean, they, they have spent a lot of money. It would be ludicrous to deny that. But they've spent it very intelligently. And Jose Mourinho's complaints of um, yeah, that he hasn't had the same money to spend. He spent about $80 million less in the two years he's been there. Yeah, okay, you can go back beyond that to say when, since Alex Ferguson left in, in 2013, when he left United, and, and the, the difference, I think, is around about £140 million net. Um, so City have spent more than United, they have spent more than any other Premier League team. So, so yeah, obviously the money is a big thing. But um, you look at all the players that Guardiola has improved, and you have to give him enormous credit for that. So mm-hmm. something, like, something like Raheem Sterling, um, Looks, you know, who had a really difficult season under Manuel Pellegrini, the, the final season before Guardiola got the city, and he now looks an absolutely outstanding footballer. You know, you look at Aguero, whose level dipped off. You look at John Stones, who had a dodgy season last season. Uh, you look at Nicolas Otamendi, who, who you know, looked a complete misfit last season and has looked brilliant this season. One of the one of the big reasons, Jonathan, of course, for City's rise has been its ownership. A City football group, it's controlled by the Abu Dhabi ruling family of billionaire Sheikh Mansour. He bought the club in 2008. He has spent a couple of billion on it since. He's expanded the empire worldwide. And it, you know, that's obviously, a, there's a business component to that, but there's also a football component to it. And you wrote a piece last week about how one result of a top-heavy premiership with the strongest teams is that we see just these crazy in-game ball possession numbers um, reflecting how English football is more bifurcated than ever. Um, you wrote, last Wednesday, Manchester City beat Newcastle United 1-0. It looked a lot like a football match, but it somehow was not quite a football match. The mood in the stadium was, frankly, weird. City's technical virtuosity was admirable and yet strangely uncompelling at halftime, City had 83% possession and were on course to break the Premier League record of 82.28 that they had done back in 2011-2012. At the end of the game, it was only 78%. But still, what effect is, you know, how much of that is the top-heavy nature of the Premiership and how much of it is this sort of shift in tactics that, the, that, that some teams like City are employing? Well, I think it's both. So... Uh, I mean, let's start with the tactics. I think when Guardiola was at Barcelona, initially, so yeah, he takes over in, in 2008, initially the, there's, a, there's a shock. People just haven't seen this before. They don't know how to deal with it. Um, and so I think certainly if you take, say, the 2009 Champions League final when Barca beat Manchester United 2-0, mm-hmm. United just, they had no way of processing what was happening. The fact they couldn't get the ball. Your top teams are used to having the ball. And so the fact that they had, I think, I think it was something like 65-35, the, the possession split in, in, in that game. But for United, 35% possession was something they had never experienced before. And there was this sense of panic of like, what do we do? We haven't got the ball. We've got to get it back. And they lost discipline as a, as a result. And Alex Ferguson, after the game, was um, very upset by that. You know, he, he felt his players had, had sort of... Had, had lost their minds a bit, that they, they'd gone chasing into situations they didn't need to chase into. They'd left spaces and you know, Barca were brilliant at exploiting that. Well, I think over time, people have come to accept that, and even big teams have come to accept that in certain games, you sit back and if you don't have a ball, it doesn't really matter. And so I think people recognise in certain circumstances, you could play that. You didn't need the ball. You held the shape. You let the opposition have the ball and you just clung on. You sat in your bunker and you, you hoped that that you could um, restrict Barca or whichever team it happened to be to long-range shots. You hope none of them flew in the top corner and you could get away with things and maybe hit them on the break. And and, then and, that's what, and that's what some Premier League teams are trying to do this year. You wrote about Crystal Palace earning a draw on New Year's Eve uh, against City 
and they bunkered, and others have tried to be more aggressive. Tottenham Spurs tried to do that. They got smoked four to one. Um, but the bunkering seems to be <laughs> the consensus approach to how can we possibly have a shot against Man City, the Manchester City this year. Yeah, and I think that's a key point. It's not just for City. So if you, you know those stats I was looking at, um, Opta who, who collate the stats, they they started collecting the data uh, in two thousand three four. And so the first three seasons in which they, they collected the stats, so 2003, 2004, 2004, 2005, 2006, there are only three games in those three years in which one team in a Premier League game had 70% or more possession. Mm-hmm. Last season, there were 36. This season, we, we've already broken. I can't remember if it's 37 or 38, but we're, we're already in record territory with you know, almost half a season still to go. So this is a, you know, a fundamental shift. And is it good for English football? Well, I, I think probably not. Well, the question I, is, how bad is it for English football? Um, and and you know, I think that, you know, the, 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 it's not just City. I think City are probably responsible for about a third of those. So you know, I think Tottenham's game against West Ham recently, Tottenham's game against Swansea recently are both examples. Um, and I, I think it is I – th- I guess there's two things to be said. Like, one is I don't blame teams for doing that. Uh, and I think a lot of people sort of – Certainly, that Newcastle game, which just felt really odd. I think it's because the first half was such a strange game. It didn't feel like a game. It felt like some kind of training drill of attack against defence. Um, and I, I think you know, there, there were a lot of people criticised Rafa Benitez and Newcastle manager for playing like that. If he thinks that's the best way of getting a result, and they only lost one nil, and they had a couple of chances, you know, they, they could easily have got a draw out of that game. If he thinks that's the best way to do that, then he has every right. But he has a duty to do that. His duty is to try and get whatever the best result of his team is. So I'm not criticising teams for doing it. My concern is is twofold. One is I think it is reflective of the huge financial divides between the top and bottom of the division. Uh, and maybe I don't know. Maybe I've got sort of my, my British glasses on here, and we're used to kind of uh, games being you know, these very physical midfield battles where the ball being lost all the time. But there's something strangely unsatisfying when one team's ability on the ball is not tested, when they're allowed just to have the ball. Um, so, yeah, I think it is concerning in that regard. Jonathan Wilson edits the quarterly magazine The Blizzard. He writes for The Guardian and other outlets and is the author of, among other titles, Inverting the Pyramid, Behind the Curtain, and Nobody Ever Says Thank You, a biography of the coach Brian Clough, whom American sports fans might know from the film Damned United. Jonathan, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you. And now it is time for Afterball. Just mentioned in the conversation with Jonathan Wilson that uh, Manchester City has advanced to the fourth round of the FA Cup. I always like to look at who's left in the FA Cup and pick a favorite team going forward. And it's always a low-ranked team. And I picked Yeovil FC this year. I'm rooting for Yeovil They play in the fourth tier of English football, League Two. On Sunday, they knocked out Bradford City, who plays in the third tier of English football, League One. The math doesn't add up in English football, but that's okay. Yeovil Town had previously reached the third round in the FA Cup back in 2004, and it was a big deal. They had to play Liverpool. They didn't win, but the club released a record to honor, to commemorate reaching the third round. It was called, it is called Yeovil True. It climbed to number 36 in the UK singles chart. Let's listen to a bit of Yeovil True. In my heart, I am always Yeovil. I belong to the Yeovil town. Yeovil True, through and through, whether we're up or down. In my heart, I am always Yeovil too. Here's my Yeovil True. It is rare when your work as a reporter affects genuine change in the world. Watergate, one example, not a personal one. The Pentagon Papers, now a hit movie. Not to brag or anything, but I also have felt that thrill. Scores, possibly even hundreds of people started playing Scrabble because of something I wrote, including a few national champions, which honestly is very gratifying. But now I'm adding another smudge of ink to my newsboy cap. In an afterball last month, you might recall that I talked to Deadspin's David Roth about the slash line ratio, his inspired observation that the replies, tweets, and likes of certain awful tweets often match up with the triple crown stats, batting average, home runs, 
RBIs of actual Major League Baseball players. At the end of that afterball, I noted that what the world needs now is a bot that can match a shitty tweet with its baseball comparables and attention Pulitzer Prize service award choosers. You, the listeners, responded. We first heard from a developer who wanted to talk to Roth about creating an app, and then from Tony Petrangelo, who did not have to wait to have a conversation with anyone. Tony is 38 and lives in Minneapolis, writes code for audio video control systems, and is a part-time stay-at-home dad. So yes, he has better things to do. But just a few hours after listening to the podcast, Tony took up the challenge. He got player statistics from fan graphs. He figured out how to calculate the similarity and in math terms, the distance between the Twitter and baseball stats. He wrote five lines of what he says is simple code that I will never understand. And so was born the Twitter triple crown ratio. You can find it. And I urge you to do so right now at the twitterratio.com. That's the twitterratio.com. First, find a promising tweet. Tony and David in a post on Deadspin on Friday, scooping this afterball. Damn you, David Roth. Both of them used a January 3rd tweet by CNN political doofus Chris Saliza. Donald Trump just crushed Steve Bannon, period, into period, very period, small period bits. When I opened the tweet, it was slashing 262, 41, 132. 262 replies, 41 retweets, 132 likes. Copy the link, paste it into the designated box, and hit get tweet. The tweet displays. The number of retweets and likes are automatically entered into boxes below. You, though, have to manually enter the number of replies. I'll get to that later. So 262 in this case. Type that in. Click on get comparables, and voila, the app returns the top 10 matches based on the Euclidean distance. That's a math term. Google it yourself. Between the Twitter and the baseball stats. For the solicit tweet, the top hit is 2006 steroid era Andrew Jones when he batted 262 with 41 home runs and 129 RBIs. That is an incredibly close match, earning a Euclidean distance score from the bot of 1.5. But the top hit isn't only what makes the bot so much fun. It's the other nine comparables. Not only because the list can span the arc of baseball history, in this case from 1946 Hank Greenberg to 1972 Johnny Bench to 2016 Edwin Encarnacion, but also because it serves as a randomly generated walk into your baseball past. With every bad tweet and its diamond analog, your baseball life flashes before your eyes. Take this execrable December 15th tweet by Republican Montana Senator Steve Daines. By cutting taxes on families and Main Street businesses, we will jumpstart our economy and open the doors to the creation of more high-paying jobs. Ugh. It was slashing at a robust 154-13-49 when I looked at it, and the triple crown ratio generator connected me with 1967 Zoilo Versailles, 1968 Tom Tresh, 1975 Brooks Robinson, and 1997 Scott Brocious. Each of them has a place in my baseball heart. Versailles, because it's been one of my favorite baseball names. Tresh, because he was the epitome of the shitty Yankee teams of my preschool years. Robinson, because he was Brooks fucking Robinson. And Brocious, because goddamn, the Yankees signed him after that 203-11-41 season in 1997. Similarly, I was all a tingle after triple crown ratioing the impressive 426-26-99 line of a December 24th tweet from the Washington Post, see what Melania Trump has been wearing as first lady. It matched up almost perfectly with Roger Hornsby's holy shit 1924 line of 424 25 94. But it was the seventh place comp that made me really smile. George Brett's 390, 24, 118 from 1980. Because that was an amazing season, but really because whenever I think of George Brett, I see him storming out of the dugout during the pine tar incident in 1983, one of the happiest making moments of my sports fan life. There's also educational value in Tony's bot. He noticed that the progression of a tweet, of an individual tweet, can mirror the evolution of the game of baseball itself. So a terrible tweet can start with, say, 
Charlie Bastian of the Philadelphia Quakers, who went 167, 429 in 1885, and then grow into, I don't know, a 1986 Rob Deere three true outcome special, progress then to a 1991 Jose Canseco injected Mark McGuire in the bathroom, and then peak with a 1936, oh shit, Lou Gehrig is just a couple of seasons from ALS. Tony is hoping to upgrade the site. He's applied for a premium developer account for the Twitter API, which would include access to the reply numbers so that users don't have to manually enter them. When he gets that, he's also up for trying to create a way to scan a feed and automatically report when a tweet matches an MLB line. I mentioned Rob Deere, and as Tony and David have noted, he pops up a lot as a comparable, a particular kind of baseball and Twitter bad. Tony has made Deere the avatar on the Twitter feed of the Triple Crown Ratio, which you should follow now at the TTC Ratio. That's at the TTC Ratio. In conclusion, the creation of this and the Scorigami bot might be the best things to have happened in 2017. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and to subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. I am Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Baby. And thanks for listening. Well, I grew up. I never faltered. And I found me a Yeovil gal. Then there came a wedding day. And this is a tale to tell. Name the vicar, he said. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.